I try to imagine what our world would look like if you had not had um, very dedicated groups of people um, who devoted their lives to pushing back uh, against abuses uh, and against aggregated power. Um, you know, people like to say, oh, we might as well do anything because it can't be worse. It can be a lot worse. And it has been a lot worse, uh, you know, throughout the world, even today in the world. I'm delighted to welcome Ben Weisner, the director of the Speech, Privacy and Technology Project at the American Civil Liberties Union, in conversation with Jared Hope, the CEO and co-founder of Status and Logos Collective. Gentlemen, welcome. Um, nice to be here. Just wanted to uh, uh, kick off the conversation, Ben, um, to ask you about your journey uh, to become a prominent lawyer and civil liberties advocate with ACLU. We'll get into the detail of some of the most famous cases uh, that you've led and you've worked on. Uh, but at this stage, just wanted to hear more about your life journey. Um, take it from the top and your own words. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know where to begin. I could begin at the start of my legal career at the American Civil Liberties Union, um, or I could begin earlier. But if I start there, um, I became a lawyer at the ACLU uh, in the month of August of 2001. Uh, I went there expecting to work on domestic jail and prison conditions in the United States. And five weeks later, um, the 9-11 attacks changed the trajectory of our country and profoundly of my career. Uh, I did end up doing work in jails and prisons, but they were uh, part of an archipelago of CIA torture prisons around the world uh, rather than local jails and prisons uh, in the United States. So you could say that my career as a lawyer has been uh, entirely shaped uh, by the events that occurred uh, really in just my first or second month um, on the job. Uh, before that, um, I guess what I can say is that I always had the sense that I wanted to work for people and not for property, um, and that when I became a lawyer, uh, I had no interest in uh, selling my services to corporations, um, that I wanted to fashion a career where I could uh, essentially protect people uh, from government power, from corporate power, um, uh, as much as possible. And I've tried to make that my lodestar. I think one of those um, interesting things, you've mentioned that you wanted to work for people and not for property. And you went to um, some of the most prestigious schools in, in America. Um, so uh, what was it that sort of convinced you that that's the route that you want to, that you want to pursue as opposed to pursuing other avenues in law? You know, I think the most honest answer here is that um, at the center of it is not charity or principle, um, but a kind of selfishness. Um, I couldn't think of anything more interesting uh, to do with my life um, than the kinds of cases that I've been able to work on. I couldn't think of anything more tedious uh, or dull than helping one bank sue another bank. Uh, and so while obviously the compensation is in a different universe, uh, the kind of daily excitement and satisfaction and the compensatory prestige that one gets from being able to work on the most prominent issues of the day in a high-profile way um, are, are really what drove me forward. So I don't want to, to make this a story about altruism. This is really um, a story about what my passion was. But why is that interesting to you, like these particular cases? Well, I mean, again, I think that, that um, you know, 
you open up the newspaper and see some of the events that are shaping the world. There are different ways to be involved in those stories. Um, uh, some people get involved through politics. Um, uh, and the nice thing about doing it through law uh, is that you manage to be involved in those exciting issues, but not have to, you know, kind of descend to the dirtier or tawdrier level uh, of retail politics. You can still essentially be in elite spaces. Um, I can make my arguments to judges rather than packed auditoriums. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how best to answer that, that question, um, uh, except to say that, um, I could not think of anything more interesting or rewarding to do than try to help someone who is a victim of human rights abuses, uh, take on impossible odds. Interesting. Thank you. Um, so you've mentioned the speech privacy and technology project at the ACLU that you've been involved in for the past two decades and you've been leading it. Um, now, this is a, a unit which is specifically working on civil liberties with a focus on national security and tech. Um, and in the post 9-11 world, a lot of things have changed. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to a lot of our viewers and listeners to um, find out a bit more about the remit of this project. What does it do on a daily basis? What are the most important cases that you work on? I will. And to be clear, in my in my two decades at the ACLU, um, the first I spent in another project that we call the National Security Project. But these are projects that, that have overlapping jurisdictions and remits. Um, uh, essentially, what the Speech, Privacy and Technology Project is trying to do is place ourselves at the intersection of new developments in science and technology and human rights, uh, and think about how the rapid acceleration of certain kinds of technologies is going to have a bearing for better and for worse uh, on human rights and civil liberties, whether that's um, where we've had most of our focus, which is the uh, just an explosive growth of surveillance technologies and how we can can protect civil liberties in the face of of that new reality and i'm sure we'll talk more about that in a minute or others um think about genetic advances um and how much our dna reveals now how much more than it did 20 or 30 or 40 years ago and how much power that gives those who have control over it um uh, so uh, and and then as well the effects that it has on freedom of expression um, and the ability of powerful entities to censor. Um, so th that's what we're trying to do. We're a team of lawyers and technologists um, who are trying to anticipate um, before new policies are rolled out and entrenched um, what the important issues are going to be so that we can put a stake in the ground and plant a flag for human rights and civil liberties. So, you know, for example, um, a decade ago, uh, before there were any surveillance drones over American cities, um, we saw that this was going to happen, uh, did our analysis, put out our policy recommendations, and then we're able to get 40 states in, in the United States to pass legislation that would limit the ability of governments and police to surveil American cities with drones. That's that's kind of the paradigm of what we're trying to do, um, uh, because as the Snowden revelations reveal, uh, if these capabilities can be developed and deployed without democratic consent or knowledge, they are very, very difficult to dislodge later on. I mean, I'd love to uh, understand a bit more about like what you're anticipating today in, in the future, but I, I'm still kind of stuck on the, on the previous uh, point. Like, um, you know, the, you say that there's not like a, uh, 
you come from like a, a perspective of altruism, but like, I mean, you're working for the ACLU or work with, um, in that body um, and you're advocating for human rights and civil liberties. So they must have some kind of importance to, to you. And I'd, I'd be very curious, like, you know, what your take is on that. Yes. I mean, they have enormous importance to me. That's right. I think I was being um, a little bit glib. You'll forgive me. Um, what I was trying to say is you should do this kind of work if you're passionate about it. Um, not because you decide that it's important for you to make a heroic sacrifice, um, right? But um, but yeah, I think it, it it comes from my sort of grave concern um, about various kinds of inequality, um, about inequality in resources, inequality in power, um, and and ways that you know I think about what our world would as 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 challenging as our current circumstances are. Um, I try to imagine what our world would look like if you had not had um, very dedicated groups of people um, who devoted their lives to pushing back uh, against abuses uh, and against aggregated power. Um, uh, you know, people like to say, oh, we might as well do anything because it can't be worse. It can be a lot worse. And it has been a lot worse, uh, you know, throughout the world, even today in the world. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I think... Um, Obviously, some of my motivation comes from very deep political commitments. Gotcha. And, and I guess, like, I'd be very curious if you could explain to the audience uh, why civil liberties matter at all. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we use these terms somewhat interchangeably at the ACLU, civil rights, civil liberties, human rights. Um, but the idea is that there are some fundamental rights that need to be protected even from the tyranny of the majority. In general, in democracies, we trust electoral majorities to make most important decisions. How will the population be taxed? Um, um, what conduct is legal or illegal and should be criminalized? Um, uh, how are we going to fund our schools and hospitals? Uh, and there, there are some issues that we generally cannot trust um, to political majorities. And those, you know, involve the rights of minorities who have no political power and who will be systematically abused and oppressed if we leave everything to uh, majority rule. And I think about my work after 9-11, um, there was no constituency, no political constituency um, in the United States to defend the rights of accused Muslim terrorists sitting in CIA or US military prisons abroad. Uh, it was either going to be the courts or they were going to be abandoned. I mean, these were our only opportunities. And so um, you think about the rights of non-citizens who can't vote. Uh, if they're not protected by courts, they're not gonna be protected by anyone. The rights of children um, who, who, um, who can't vote. Um, as well, the rights of criminals in general, uh, people who are convicted of crimes. Um, whenever you see political leaders railing against a particular population, um, those are the people who need um, human rights advocates, civil liberties lawyers to stand between them and the power of the majority. So um, here's a here's a really interesting um, question that I wanted to bring Jared in because um, civil liberties have come up. Um, a few times during the course of this conversation. Uh, Jared, you're a successful technologist, researcher, writer, but also I know that you're a very committed civil libertarian. Um, and uh, I know that we've discussed um, 
sort of how you think um, the tech stack um, that you're leading and you've created and developed over the past few years is going to be a game changer when it comes to civil liberties. Um, specifically in the context of what we have in Web2, um, which is this global digital panopticon, bit of a surveillance state. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so I just wanted uh, you, if that's possible, for you to tell some of our audience who might be interested about why you think this tech stack in particular uh, and the broader work uh, that you're concentrating on is going to be a game changer in securing civil liberties. Um, I, I think like, so, so I think um, like the legal approach is, is certainly uh, necessary for, for this to, to go ahead, right? Um, and our conversations with some of the uh, whistleblowers and hacktivists um, from the sort of 2013 era, um, they were fundamentally sort of reformist in some ways, right? Um, there's always this sort of, uh, the ideal path would be to achieve reform within uh, the state infrastructure. Uh, I guess what's so compelling to me about, say, uh, blockchains, if designed correctly, is they can act as a sort of new authority or a new order in which certain rights, uh, such as civil liberties, um, can actually be enforced in, in code. Uh, it does have some dependencies, such as like uh, communications, like how you connect over the internet and the infrastructure that supports that, as well as energy. Uh, but it has the possibility to like allow for something like encrypted communications. Uh, it allows for uh, disintermediated access um, or transactions uh, between people. And so you can get, you know, properties that were in institutions like cash-based money, um, like fungibility, for example, uh, you can now bring these back in with these kinds of technologies. Uh, but more generally, I guess, if you if you look at a decentralized technology stack that includes the blockchain, but also private peer-to-peer messaging, as well as um, uncensorable uh, decentralized file storage, you can start to look at a base layer that is not dependent on servers and therefore a central authority in the same way um, that can rebuild uh, or uh, potentially allow for a new version of the net to arise, I guess. Well, and I'll, I'll add here. I mean, I, I, I have never believed that law and politics um, what Larry Lessig calls East Coast Code um, can solve all of our problems. And if you talk to, to Snowden, as I know you did, um, about the progress that has been made since 2013 um, in the last decade, I think what he's most proud of is not the changes in law that were modest um, uh, where they occurred, um, but the fact that the internet is much more encrypted <laughs> than it was then. And you now have, um, you know, 2 billion people using a secure messaging tool like WhatsApp, um, hundreds of thousands or more, you know, using probably millions now using Signal. Uh, and this was the big complaint of the U.S. intelligence community was that the Snowden revolution, uh, revelations accelerated the adoption uh, of encryption technologies by, by many years uh, because uh, people without even knowing what the term meant, had to adjust to a new threat model. Um, so so I, I certainly concur um, that uh, in as much as technology has been part of the problem, it's also part of the solution. And uh, I mean, I, I, I'm also of the opinion that uh, this, uh, I guess, East Coast uh, law, as you, as you find it, um, 
or like tech pros in general, like I don't think that you can really um, go that route and expect it to to be this sort of almost libertarian utopia or, or Ancapistan in some ways, right? Um, and it's quite clear because even though what happens in the protocol um, or what can be enabled by the protocol uh, is the possibility, it is still dependent on a sort of... Uh, elites, I guess, that's around it, whether they're developers who maintain the protocol or the foundation that is, is building it and propagating the, its use. Uh, and they are, that is where the political realm resides. And as long as that can be influenced, then the protocol can be influenced. Um, however, uh, at least with these sort of protocols and once they're out, um, as long as there's people in other jurisdictions around the planet that, that are capable of running these nodes and we have a free and open internet, there is a possibility for, for a lot of utility to come out of them. So uh, you're right, Ben. Um, we did we did, we did did spoke to Edward Snowden. We were proud and honored uh, to host uh, the inaugural episode of this podcast um, with your most famous client, I suppose. Um, and you've been known around the globe as the lead attorney for Edward Snowden. Now, it's a work that you've described as a work of a lifetime, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, wanted to ask you to share your reflections a decade um, after, the, after the Snowden case, the impact of it on civil liberties in the States, but also around the world as well, specifically in the context of what Jared mentioned and what you alluded to earlier on in terms of the developments that we've seen in encrypted technology. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to start by going back to what Snowden always insisted was his core motivation. You know, I know that that people view the Snowden revelations as a story fundamentally about surveillance. Uh, for him, the revelations were fundamentally a story about democratic accountability and secondarily a story about surveillance. For him, the core sin um, was not even that these systems were deployed, um, but that governments... Uh, walled themselves off from the democratic populations uh, and made hugely consequential decisions in secret um, without not, not only without informing the public, but while affirmatively lying to the public. Um, and in the months before Snowden came forward in the spring and summer of 2013, you know, he watched as both the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Congress um, Expressly, ex expressly decided that they were not going to intervene and interfere with this secrecy uh, and even consider the constitutionality uh, of these new systems um, that had really changed our world. Uh, and so I think if you, if you begin to evaluate the last 10 years from that metric, um, I, I think that there has been a historic global debate about some of the dangers of... Uh, new technologies, mass surveillance. Now, that debate hasn't always resolved itself the way that I would want it to or the way that Snowden has wanted it to. But the fact that you had um, parliaments in many countries openly discussing what was going on, uh, in some cases, as in the US, uh, enacting historic reforms, um, was itself um, you know, vitally important. Um, I, I think that Snowden's message that surveillance technologies in particular had outpaced democratic controls uh, is one that was very alien to people in 2013 and is very mainstream now. Um, I think that the uh, 
major technology companies in the U.S. learned that even as they were uh, answering their front doors and turning over uh, their customers' material to U.S. law enforcement who were producing legal papers, their back doors were being broken into uh, in secret ways that infuriated them um, and that required them to adjust to a new kind of threat model. Um, you know, having said all of that, um, obviously there is, um, you know, a real sense of disappointment that mass surveillance continues to be um, an extremely difficult issue to communicate and to mobilize politically around, um, and continues to be too abstract for um, most people to grapple with, um, that, that actually I think that we've had a lot more success in communicating the dangers of little brother than big brother. What I mean by that is people understand viscerally what happens if their local police have access to certain information about them. But if it's sitting in an NSA database in Utah, um, it remains uh, a kind of abstraction to them. Um, and it continues to be a major challenge for us 10 years after the Snowden revelations um, to uh, communicate that these kinds of technologies without very, very strong controls are a major threat to open societies and democratic governance. I'm kind of curious now, like, I understand that it's very difficult to, to communicate that. I mean, like, we work on a privacy messenger and, um, like, we have difficulties also conveying the, uh, the value add to that to, to some, um, some of the market. Uh, I'm kind of curious, like, how would you go about communicating uh, the dangers of mass surveillance? Well, I think it's it, it helps to start with small surveillance, right? The, the, the technologist Bruce Schneier has a wonderful way of describing this. He says, imagine how you feel, remember how you feel when you're driving and a police car is driving right alongside you, right? Most of us feel uncomfortable. We feel watched. We feel a little bit tense. Um, we might slow down so that the police car can get ahead of us. We're not feeling comfortable and we're not feeling ourselves, uh, and he says, now try to imagine feeling that way all the time. Uh, and if you don't feel that way all the time, it's because you're not actually focusing on all the ways that you're already carrying that police officer in your pocket. Um, if you're using a commercial smartphone, um, all the ways you're interacting with technology, um, essentially you are under that constant level um, of surveillance. And it's only going to be more profoundly intrusive as the CCTV cameras that are around us um, are woken up with video analytics and facial recognition um, and become not these passive watchers, but much more active watchers. Um, so I think if you start there, um, you know, the I thought the, the hack of Ashley Madison, which was the dating site for people who wanted to have affairs, was a great moment because it's a literal database of ruin. Um, it's a database, the release of which is going to explode lives. But every single one of us um, has such databases of ruin. Um, there, there's something that could be published that would um, blow up your personal and professional life. Um, and now all of this is sitting in government databases. Now, we've been trained not to worry about that because for the most part, they're not looking at it. The NSA is not 
analyzing um, in a way that most people consider analyzing, really looking um, at the individual details. But the fact that they are sitting there like a ticking time bomb um, is something that people need to begin to grasp. Um, and, and, and of course, what we've seen, what happens is that the information is collected under one rationale, um, and then the rules are changed. Um, after 9-11, the chief complaint of the government was, um, we had a wall. Uh, all this information that was collected for intelligence purposes was off limits to law enforcement, and we need to take down that wall. The same thing will happen with the mass surveillance databases that intelligence communities are collecting now, that if there is another 9-11 style attack, I should say when there is another 9-11 style attack, uh, it will be conclusively shown that the information that could have prevented that attack was sitting in a government database. Because if you collect all the dots, they will always connect in hindsight. Um, and then the claim will be, we must get rid of these restrictive rules that prevent us from looking at everything that we already have. Um, and now you're living in a world where it's not just the NSA that potentially has access to that data center in Utah. Um, it's every cop in the beat who might be able to get it from a smartphone um, in his hand. And so, um, you know, these are the kinds of narratives that that I uh, that I try to tell or, or, or really metaphors, right? Um, uh, people do respond viscerally to some kinds of surveillance. They don't actually want spy planes flying over their cities. Um, they don't want to ha- look up and have drones with powerful surveillance cameras looking down on them at all times. Um, and you know, if you say, um, without the right restrictions, um, government actually gets much more information from the technology that you are that you are already using than they would from a spy plane. Um, uh, you can you can sometimes break through. Um, those kinds of defenses. But um, but if I had better answers than this, we would have more successes on the policy front. I mean, there's a great lockstep mechanism for the expansion of power, right? If you're always collecting data and then you can always point to it every single event uh, and just continue doing that ad infinitum. Um, but I mean, you also mentioned the NSA, right? And I think you've been quoted saying the NSA is not uniquely evil, but it's uniquely capable. Do you still, uh, do you find that still true or why or why not? Yes, no, I, I, I certainly think that's true. In fact, if you talk to people in the U.S. intelligence community, um, you know, they will say in all sincerity that they operate under more legal restraints than almost any other intelligence community in the world. That's true, actually. Right? Most countries don't have rules that govern their collection of information from non-citizens abroad. You know, they don't have those rules because they don't do a ton of it. Um, and they haven't ha- always had the capability. Now, of course, that's changing because now if a country doesn't have the capability by itself, uh, it can get it from a vendor in Dubai or in Israel. Um, it can essentially buy an off-the-shelf mass surveillance or targeted surveillance um, you know, suite um, from, from, um, from one of these vendors. And so um, what we've always communicated back to the NSA is don't count on your monopoly on capability uh, because that capability is going to get democratized. Um, The same thing with lethal drone strikes. Uh, You know, there was a time when the U.S. was the only government in the world capable of projecting that kind of military force. Um, Now there's 50 countries that have um, armed drones that they can deploy. Um, And so it's in the U.S. government's interest to, to set global rules rather than uh, you know, sort of flouting them um, at a time before uh, the technology becomes so democratized. But yes, I mean, I, I, I really do think that that the story in the U.S. is capability 
driving policy. Um, build it because we can. Collect it all. We'll find a use later. Um, this was the mantra. Um, the authorities will follow. The uses will follow. But for now, collect it because we can, and it might be useful. Of course, that's true. It might be useful. Um, it turns out that mass surveillance databases are um, predictably almost useless, but forensically extremely valuable, <laughs> right? Uh, for looking backwards, if you've collected everything, then you have a surveillance time machine. For protecting the future, you've buried your needle in the world's biggest haystack. Uh, and so the purpose for which these things were built um, you know, is, is basically a lie. Um, the real use case is what they say they're not going to do, um, which is to turn it on the populations um, for the most effective, you know, sort of retrospective criminal law enforcement that the world has ever known. And I mean, going back, what's your interpretation of what happened with Snowden's observation? Was that like a constitutional failure? Uh, you mean the, the, the response to the Snowden revel, uh, revelations in the U.S. legal system? Correct. Well, I mean, I, I will say that it was the only time in my two-decade legal career where we were able to get a court to review the legality and constitutionality of an intelligence surveillance program and declare it illegal. Um, what typically happens in these cases, the reason why these programs evade legal oversight and oversight and constraint um, is that the government uses secrecy and immunity and justiciability doctrines to prevent anybody from challenging them in the first place. Uh, and this is what Snowden observed. And uh, again, a few months before June of 2013, when he came forward, the U.S. Supreme Court considered an ACLU lawsuit uh, where we were representing Amnesty International and others in a challenge to the constitutionality of an NSA surveillance program. Uh, the Supreme Court rules not that our allegations are unsubstantiated, not that the program is legal, but that we have no right to be in court uh, because we can't establish standing. We can't show that our clients were subjected to these surveillance programs. And we can't show that because that information is classified. And we can't use litigation uh, and discovery to get that information because of state secrecy. So it means that neither we nor anyone else can bring this case into a court of law to adjudicate the legality um, of an intelligence surveillance program. Now, Snowden, the first document that The Guardian published from the Snowden Archive was an order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to a company called Verizon Business Records, uh, directing it to turn over all of the metadata on all of its customers' phone calls every day to be stored for five years. One of those customers was the American Civil Liberties Union. So he essentially handed us a ticket to federal court, and it wasn't possible this time for the government to use that argument effectively that we couldn't establish standing to be there. And for the first time, um, we got courts saying, you know, this program is illegal and has always been illegal. So that, I think, was a was a tremendous success, but but a limited one, because it didn't change the fundamental rule that as long as the government effectively keeps a program secret, it can prevent the courts from adjudicating its legality in an adversarial system. There are secret courts that can that, that, that rule on this, but they don't hear from us and they only hear from the government. Um, those courts operate as rubber stamps. And um, uh, I mean, the other thing I would say about the Snowden revelations 
is they really do show the power of sunlight. Um, in the weeks after the initial publications, President Obama came forward and said uh, irritably, um, look, there's nothing for you to be worried about. Everything that's been revealed has been approved by all three branches of government. That was actually true. And that was also the problem. Um, because once the public was added to the conversation, all three branches of government, stung by this sunlight, had to change their position. Uh, and uh, you saw the executive branch unilaterally rolling back some programs, the courts, as I just said a, mention ago, a minute ago, uh, finally ruling on their legality, and Congress for the first time since the 1970s restricting rather than expanding the intelligence authority of uh, the intelligence authorities of the the, um, the surveillance state. And so uh, again, all of these things were limited, but I think you know to me they did point away. No one's going to solve this problem. All we can do is try to uh, strengthen the entities that are capable of conducting some oversight. Um, for that, we're going to need more whistleblowers. Right. Um, we can't expect one in 2013 to solve our problems in 2025. Unfortunately, we're going to need people to come forward with some regularity um, to tell us what's going on so that we can put pressure on courts, so that we can put pressure on parliaments, so that the media can play a much bigger role, um, and so that the corporations that are the government's partners um, can feel the pressure of public disapproval um, and and uh, do a little bit more to stand between their customers and government power. Um, so, you know, I think one of the funny conversations I have with Snowden is, um, you know, he accuses me of being an incrementalist and I accuse him of being a solutionist. Um, he says that, you know, I am a weak reformer who just is tinkering around the edges. Um, and I say that he is a, you know, utopian idealist who doesn't understand politics. Um, and that um, essentially we're democracy is not a problem that can be solved. Um, uh, it's, it's something that has to be constantly, constantly fought for. I, I, I kind of want to ask about, um, you know, how you view Snowden as a solutionist, but I almost feel like it's unfair without having him here as, as well to defend himself. But yeah. and why, yeah. why is he like? Why, in your view, do you view him to be utopian? Well, I mean, I, I, again, I think I'm. If he were not, then he would not have taken the risk that he took, and so the world depends on people um, who have that kind of vision, courage even if it's unrealistic, right? So if he had come to me in March of 2013 and said, I'm thinking of doing this in June, I'm going to change the world, I would have tied him to my chair and said, I'm not letting you leave this room and blow up your life. But I would have been wrong. I would have been wrong. He did change the world. He might not have changed it exactly the way that he expected to, but he really did. He really did change it. It's people like him who changed the world. Um, you, you know, I say that my, my role of the lifetime was just being his conciliary, trying to help him on his historic walk, um, help him avoid worse decisions and make better decisions. But, but you know, sort of people with my temperament and sensibility um, don't make historic change um, in in the same way. So, no, I look, I think, I think, um, you know, on the political side, um, you know, he, he hoped to see the kind of classification reform that would make whistleblowers unnecessary. 
mm-hmm. going forward, right? Um, uh, and he hoped to see a much more kind of profound global public rejection of mass surveillance that would be enduring um, than what we saw. Um, and I think that he is, you know, sort of quite sympathetic to your um, uh, mission of, you know, trying to use technology to create other pathways for these kinds of reforms. Um, I, I, I suspect more so than I am. Um, uh, so, but yes, it's true. It would be an interesting episode to have uh, the two of us um, list a half a dozen topics and talk about our different approaches to them and the different ways in which we see them. Definitely. Um, no, I love that. I, I guess, like, to play devil's advocate, you know, the, these issues we're talking about um, are effectively matters of national security, right? Like, that's the justification for mass surveillance and, you know, these secrets courts and having, you know, government approval through yes. all the different uh, branches of power. Like, what's your take on that or what's your perspective? I mean, my, my perspective is that national security are weasel words um, that have almost no meaning whatsoever. Uh, and that the, the, the kind of whole concept of national security has been used um, to advance anti-democratic values. Uh, we all understand what national defense is, that, um, that, that countries face genuine external threats, some more than others. The U.S. hasn't faced a legitimate one in, in, in quite some time. We all understand what public safety is and what police powers but try to define national security in any kind of coherent way, uh, and particularly the way the term is used in the U.S. context, um, which encompasses, I think, quite legitimate issues of national defense, like trying to slow nuclear proliferation, uh, but also the most far-fetched and fanciful and idiotic terrorist plots that are concocted by undercover FBI agents. We call it, you know, national security, counterterrorism. Right? These 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 concepts have been used. Um, to justify a wholesale departure from the rule of law. So we understand, um, uh, you know, even in, in, in conservative societies, that uh, in the criminal justice context, for example, if the police break the rules, that might mean that a guilty person has to go free. And that's the price that we pay of having a rule of law and a system that is governed by constitutional values. Um, but that kind of understanding is completely absent when you start using the language of national security. And so, um, uh, you know, we have the government saying this individual at Guantanamo um, cannot be released because it's too dangerous to national security. Literally, what does that mean? What does it mean for a global hyperpower to say that one individual can't be released from prison because he's a threat to national security? Um, I mean, that we don't mock that is a real political failure. Um, You you know, Americans are more likely to drown in their bathtub than they are to be killed by a terrorist. Um, And so I I think one of the most important things to do, and it's another very, very difficult thing to do, um, is to get people to understand and to really internalize that they live in one of the most secure societies in the history of the planet. Um, that the likelihood that they will die from violence is lower than it has ever been in human history. Uh, and to have a politics that can't recognize that, uh, that inflates the threat um, rather than telling people to be more resilient, more courageous, um, and to, to, uh, 
um, uh, experience their freedom um, is it, it's just it's so disappointing that that you know two decades on from 9/11 terrorism and national security continue to have the same kind of force um, in our politics. So um, finding a way to um, challenge that hyperbolic threat inflation that characterizes the work of the security state um, is is I think a really really vital task uh, and one that's very hard for human rights advocates to do because we don't. Um, have the same credibility with the public when we talk about security as we do when we talk about rights. Right. I mean, the terrorism aspect is one that comes up for us as well because we work on privacy technologies. Um, right. I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, do you view terrorism in, in the same, like the term terrorism in the same sense as national security? Um, but I guess the other, like the argument actually is, is like, well, these programs are justified to thwart terrorism and privacy enables terrorism. Like, how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah, I, I, I just, um, with great frustration, um, I, you know, I say like where this has played out a lot um, in our work, which has a lot of overlaps with yours, is in defending secure communication, right? So for the last, at least into the 1990s, the FBI has been trying to ban end-to-end encryption in one way or another, um, through passing legislation that would install a clipper chip, through seeking, you know, back doors, um, um, all, 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 or, or asking a court, uh, in the case of Apple and FBI, to require a technology company um, to hack its own product um, and to build weaknesses into it. And the rationale is always the same thing. We're going dark um, you're creating a place that is just for terrorists and is off limits to law enforcement, um, off limits to national security officials. I think, you know, look, the best response to that is um, you're not going dark. You're going so bright that you need sunglasses. <laughs> you have more information about us at your fingertips than you have ever had. And you would not go back 40 years before the adoption of encryption if it meant that you lost all of the other uh, tools that you've picked up since then. Um, uh, and you know the idea that you want to weaken our defenses for these edge cases um, um, uh, is something that is opposed not just by civil libertarians, but by people who are responsible for cyber defense and cybersecurity, right? I see, I think that, that, that where secure communications um, has a little bit of an advantage um, over um, some of the other newer technologies, um, uh, blockchains, for example, is that um, when we were fighting over their legality, right, you had half the government on one side and half the government on the other side. You had huge industry um, on, uh, you know, lined up against law enforcement on these, right? The, the, the sort of use cases for communication security were so strong, so compelling, so obvious and endorsed by such powerful entities that it wasn't just, um, uh, you know, the power of the state versus some idealist human rights advocates. You have the people in the NSA who are responsible for doing cyber defense who think, look, the FBI doesn't need one more tool. We need strong encryption. You have all the corporations and the banks who need strong encryption. Um, uh, so, you know, I think I think the challenge when it's come to newer technologies um, is that you don't have that same kind of powerful coalition arrayed on the privacy side um, because you don't have the established use cases 
um, that you saw for secure communications. Interesting. Um, now, uh, Edward Snowden's name came up a few times. Um, and yes, we sort of hosted him um, in the first episode of this podcast. Uh, Jared, you had a very interesting conversation with Edward Snowden. I know that you followed him uh, perhaps since 2013. Um, and you discussed local state vision with him and um, quite a lot of technical issues. But I wanted to ask you about your personal reflections of that conversation. Um, it was quite an in-depth conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like both Snowden and Assange were uh, people I looked up to when I was younger um, for, for different reasons. Um, and um, I need to start that again. Uh, it's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I guess like with, uh, yeah, but both Assange and Snowden were people I looked up uh up to when I was younger, uh, they were both like people who were utopian, um, as Ben was saying, and uh, they had a vision uh, and they really wanted to change the world and they made a huge impact. Um, at least they, they made the attempt to, and they, you know, there were some consequences. Um, I think without them, I probably wouldn't be on this path. Uh, that I'm trying to right now in, in de developing out these things because they brought to, to awareness these issues um, of tyranny, uh, of the expansion of power, uh, of the erosion of civil liberties. And that allowed me to see a world in which those things that I grew up with and um, I was brought up to believe in would not exist. And that terrifies me. Um, and so... You know, I think we're all on a similar mission where we would like to see the world that we had uh, for our children. And, you know, as democracy needs to be fought for every day, so does liberty. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to, I guess. Very interesting. You've, uh, you've also uh, mentioned uh, Julian um, Assange. Um, and one of the other episodes that we hosted was a conversation between Jared and Estella Assange uh, on this very same podcast. Uh, ben, um, you, you're on the record uh, saying that um, by pursuing uh, Julian Assange, the US authorities are putting US journalists in a very dangerous place. Can you elaborate a bit more what you mean? Yeah, I would say in, in in at least two ways that are important. And, and just to give a little bit of context here, um, in modern American history, we have never attempted to prosecute someone for publishing truthful information. So only in very recent American history did we even begin to prosecute sources for journalists. Um, it was not until the 1980s that someone was convicted for leaking classified information to the media. Um, uh, but the Assange case crosses a completely new line uh, because it tells people who would publish the government secrets that they too um, might face criminal liability. Um, look, um, as I've said elsewhere, the the best national security investigative journalism looks a lot like a criminal conspiracy. Um, governments like the U.S. have very broad secrecy laws that prohibit anyone who works uh, in the government from disclosing what it refers to as national defense information to anyone not authorized to receive it, including the media and the public. Um, uh, on a daily basis, 
reporters from mainstream news organizations are essentially conspiring with sources to evade the government's criminal secrecy laws. The, the, the major news publications in the U.S., uh, in fact, use the secure drop technology that was developed by WikiLeaks uh, in order to solicit um, secret information without detection. Um, it's one thing for journalists to say that Julian Assange has done specific things that I, as a journalist, would not do. But the real question is whether the theory of prosecution against Assange also covers the activities of other national security journalists. And, uh, and in fact, it does. It would criminalize the practice um, of journalists of competing with government for access to secrets and publishing it in the public interest. Uh, but there's a, another layer here, uh, which I think should be of even greater concern to American journalists, which is that the U.S. is taking the position that a foreign journalist or publisher can be subjected to the U.S.'s criminal secrecy laws. Um, that is an unbelievably bold and dangerous claim because every country has secrecy laws. Some of them are much harsher than the United States laws. And what's our basis now? Um, if Russia demands that the UK extradite a Guardian reporter who has published secret Russian documents, if China demands that the United States extradite a New York Times reporter who has published secret Chinese documents. Now, of course, we won't comply with those requests, but on what principled basis will we not comply? Um, once we've established the precedent that the United States can uh, can imprison an Australian publisher uh, for not respecting the U.S.'s secrecy laws. And so um, the damage to the U.S.'s soft power here, the damage to our ability to stand up for journalists in other countries, um, in Turkey, in Iran, uh, in Kyrgyzstan, um, you know, who might be arrested for doing their work, uh, will be really, really incalculable. Uh, and and uh, the point is not that tomorrow or the next day you'll see New York Times reporters extradited to China or imprisoned by the United States government, but that in the U.S. newsrooms, the lawyers will be telling the journalists, you cannot do that because we now know that that's a crime that can be punished as a felony. Um, and, um, uh, you know, foreign countries will simply ignore, um, you know, our attempts to defend press freedom worldwide. So it's really, really vital that there be a resolution to the Assange case that does not involve extradition, trial, and conviction. Uh, and we're all working uh, in all the ways that we know how to prevent that from being the outcome. So Julian Assange was mentioned. He has this 2013 book, um, which he, in it, he, there, is a, there is a phrase that he says, um, we are the last free generation or the last generation that experienced freedom um, on the web. Uh, I want to ask both of you gents about your perspective and your view on that uh, from different from different sides, of course. Uh, ben, you as a lawyer, and Jared, you as a technologist uh, and a civil libertarian. Well, I guess I can start. I, I, I um, you know, I, I, I haven't read that book, so I'm not responding to his book so much as I am to your prompt. Um, I, I'm not quite as, uh, I don't think the situation is quite as dire um, as that. There certainly are some rights that are alive and well um, on the web, um, certainly in the U.S. context. Uh, I do think that freedom of expression, for example, uh, at least in relation to government, um, is something that continues to have real legal protection. Of course, I think the challenge is that 
now uh, the traditional public square um, has been bought by private companies and they are the new censors and the law allows them to make whatever decisions they want. Um, but if you're motivated and if you have means other than using dominant social media platforms, um, you can still use the web to communicate, to express your ideas, um, uh, to put your ideas out there in the world. Um, and, you know, unless you live um, in a genuinely authoritarian state um, like China, uh, I think Russia is now trying to build a similar firewall uh, to that. But um, but I do think that our, our uh, in, in the U.S. context, the courts have continued to um, quite strongly protect, uh, at least against government interference, freedom of expression online. Yeah, I mean... The problem is big tech, you know, all these sort of public squares, right? Um, because they do not have the same oversight. And so um, the states can leverage those entities for performing those functions. And like, while yes, in principle, you can publish on the internet independently, you know, the other side of freedom of speech is the right to be heard. Uh, and if, you know, if you have your own website, your reach is going to be pretty minimal um, compared to what it could be where if you're able to actually get an audience where people actually are now the net is largely consolidated around these platforms. I think, I think that's true. Um, and I think where I would like to see more government intervention is in preventing companies from achieving the kind of dominance that they have. We don't want, you know, two thirds of the public to get their news and information from three companies. Um, that that that's something that never should have been allowed in the first place. Um, and uh, we're starting to see uh, on the U.S. side at least attempts to to go after that kind of monopoly power, but they're likely too little. Um, too late um, in the context of these these speech platforms. So I think that's true, but I don't know what the alternative is to creating alternatives. Um, you're in the business of creating an alternative. Um, it's going to be your work of a lifetime to try to not just create, but to expand, amplify, um, make usable for non-experts um, alternatives to these uh, uh, dominant tech, tech platforms. And, um, and I do think that uh, you know, as these companies become harder and harder for governments to regulate, uh, we're going to need to have market alternatives. We're going to need to have um, brilliant people coming forward and saying and convincing uh, large groups of people that there's a better way to uh, to do what they want to do without um, all the baggage that big tech brings along. Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's doable, but it's not. It's a massive undertaking. Um, that's certainly the case. But I guess speaking yeah. of technology, like we touched on earlier, that you know, uh, part of your work is to anticipate what the future might bring in terms of technology and its relation to to law and, and government. Uh, I'm very curious to hear what's on the horizon for you now. Well, I think one thing that it's always useful to do um, is look at the places in the world where, you know, that vanguard is already being implemented. So look at Western China, you know, look what happens when a country has the same technological capability that Western societies have, um, but already has uh, authoritarian politics in place. Um, and so you really have a, you know, surveillance nightmare um, in Western China where, um, you know, the entire 
infrastructure um, has been turned against the people um, in a way that makes building any movement of opposition almost impossible. And this is, I think, what Snowden was talking about when he said turnkey tyranny, um, that once the architecture of oppression is in place, uh, a political change, right, that, that may not seem dramatic, um, elect a President Trump. Uh, now, he turned out to be not very effective as an authoritarian. But, uh, but had he enlisted the intelligence community instead of fighting the intelligence community, instead of criticizing the deep state, has he said, hey, these are my friends and allies. Once you have that architecture of oppression, if you can turn that switch, um, uh, you can make it very, very, very difficult for movements of resistance even to develop. So, you know, I gave the example before of CCTV of security cameras in our society, right? These are ubiquitous in the United States. Uh, you know, we have more of them per capita than they have in China. And most people don't pay any attention to them at all. And they're right not to, because no one is ever going to look at that footage. There's just too much of it. Um, in some instances, people will rewind to see what happened, but no one's actually analyzing it in real time. That's going to change. Um, it won't be people doing it. It's going to be computers doing it. Uh, and if you look at, it's always a good thing to do to look at the brochures that surveillance vendors are putting out there, um, the, the technology that they say that they want to sell. Um, and uh, analytic capability, AI-enhanced analytics that can be just put onto an existing CCTV infrastructure um, can wake them up like Toy Story um, so that every camera out there is now watching for what it has been trained to view as suspicious conduct. Uh, and once the population has an awareness that the cameras are watching for suspicious conduct, they're going to conform their conduct to try to not attract the attention of those cameras. If you add facial recognition uh, to that same infrastructure, you've turned every camera into a digital checkpoint. And every time we walk by, uh, we're being identified um, in addition to, to watched. So, you know, this is the kind of thing where the technology already exists for us to have a completely different society um, than we have right now. Um, and we need to use law and politics to prevent those things from being deployed. And you want, we want to prevent them from being deployed because, of course, the game on the other side is get them deployed as quickly as possible and show that they prevented X, Y, or Z, or solved this, or caught a serial killer, um, or found these child pornographers, or saved a child. Um, uh, you know, this is what's happening with facial recognition right now. That that um, um, as people express less concern about terrorism, we're told this is the only way that we're going to be able to catch child predators um, or identify child victims um, with these kinds of new technologies. So, um, so, so that is one way of thinking about the dark future um, is, you know, look at the most sophisticated deployments in the current authoritarian world and try to prevent us from going down those roads. I think one thing that gives me hopes for like Western liberal democracies, at least, is like the United Kingdom has a vast CCTV network, uh, and there's a bunch of vigilantes going around in southern London, knocking out cameras as in response yeah. to the the Yule stuff. Like, I don't know if you've been following that at all. Yeah, yeah, no, I haven't. And and I think we're seeing more creative 
forms of surveillance, counter surveillance, uh, people developing technologies that will defeat facial recognition. And that's a place where I think there's room for a ton of innovation is in disruptive technologies. Yeah, we're all going to be wearing fancy makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, like, how you make the argument for the right to privacy. Yeah. I mean, I think that privacy is a word that's been asked to do too much and that people respond more deeply to a word like liberty, to a word like freedom, to a word like fairness, right? And so all of those are words that um, intersect with various aspects of privacy, right? So do we want secret, unaccountable systems to be making decisions that affect our lives without our having any visibility into how they operate, right? I mean, like this is how um, black box AI deployments are already implicating rights and liberties. And um, uh, I, I think if you think about it in that way, um, is, um, yeah, I, I, I think people end up getting trapped in the nothing to hide framework. And you can come up with the most devastating persuasive arguments against that. But somehow that word privacy, um, it just doesn't capture what we're getting at when we worry about state intrusions um, onto individual rights and liberties. And so um, as much as possible, um, I try to use the other words that are more deeply resonant um, to people, um, um, like words like freedom and words like liberty, words like fairness. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, like, I've come to that conclusion my, myself. I guess the other one that I, I, I realized that, at least in, in our context, uh, integrating privacy into, say, a blockchain. Um, and my view of blockchains is like it's a form of... Uh, I wouldn't say legalistic order, but it's an order of, of a kind. Um, and if you can introduce, you know, these sort of privacy mechanisms into it, uh, you allow for you allow you allow the system to get closer to a, an aspect of neutrality, uh, and it be, the service network itself becomes neutral to the contents that's flowing through it, uh, which I would hope to see institutions being built on in the future. Yeah, and 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 again, that's that's generally been one of the strong arguments for secure communications platforms. Um, I, I do think that the argument becomes much more difficult from a policy standpoint when you're talking about things other than communications flowing through, in particular uh, money and resources, uh, because I think that the, the, um, the state interests there tend to be stronger than they are for intercepting communications. And the individual interests tend to be a little bit weaker um, than for communications. And the public, at least, and certainly policymakers, um, have not yet been persuaded um, that there is a vital use case for that degree of financial privacy that would not dis distinguish between transferring $600 million and transferring $10 um, um, in terms of privacy. And so, um, and, and I include myself in the public there. Um, um, I, I, I certainly think that that if there's going to be um, any government involvement at all in any digital currencies, um, that's hugely dangerous um, unless 
um, there is some way to guarantee that um, the same protections that we have from cash um, for small transactions, at least, are still available, which is technologically possible. But I think we don't trust governments um, uh, to do that, nor should we really trust um, governments in that context. Of course, the alternative right now is to trust MasterCard, Venmo, PayPal, Bank of America, not not the greatest institutions on the planet either. Um, but but I don't I don't think um, uh, you know the crypto community, for lack of a better term, um, has broken through to the public. Um, uh, in particular, attracted powerful allies um, uh, in the same way that we did with encrypted communications, um, you know, to, to, to convey that there are really vital everyday um, use cases for a much higher degree of financial privacy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the crypto community has largely been focused on the financial aspects of like what a blockchain does, but I actually think governance in general um, is what it, its real application will be in the sort of medium to long term. Um, so I, I well, I, I would love to see. I would I would love to see um, blockchain um, use cases and applications that are not sitting on top of you know a casino, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, that, that, right. And, I mean that that's I think that's the problem is that you know you scratch the surface a little bit and a lot of them. Um, uh, are created by people who are, you know, sort of sitting on a pile of coins. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, from an outsider looking in, it's like, I'm, I'm not, but I can imagine one. Um, yeah. It certainly looks like that, right? Like, and I would agree, like, internally, like, I, I crypto as a political project um, has kind of fallen out of the way, right? Uh, and there's been, um, internally, there's kind of like two camps or two major sort of sections one is like much more interested in the sort of financial aspect and like getting rich and these sort of things and then there's people here who actually understand the political implications of what this technology could mean um however there isn't a coherent political formula and its propagation um hasn't uh fully manifested itself yet but um that's part of what we're trying to trying to do Um, yeah well I'll, i'll be watching with great interest yeah cool thank you on uh, communication uh, per se, like uh, you know, even if we are talking about the transmission of money, like isn't that a form of communication, and couldn't it be defended as such? Yes, and I think look, I mean, if you were, it, it, it kind of it kind of depends on what you what society you think you were li- we're living in. Um, if we think we're already living in China, or if we are already living in China, and the idea is we need to find some way to build movements to resist centralized authoritarian power, then obviously that requires money as well as words being able to move without state suppression and detection. Um, if we're, if we, you know, sort of take a social democratic uh, Scandinavian country as our norm, where there's, you know, a fair amount of political freedom and the quality of life of the citizens there depends on a well-enforced progressive tax code where the richest people are paying 70% and the poorest people are paying nothing, um, then the kind of financial invisibility and privacy that these technologies deploy can be a real threat um, to the social good that governments um, uh, kind of need to carry out. And so it really kind of depends where you are in this. And I think that's one of the real divides is that, you know, when I, when I talk to my friend Edward Snowden, um, he is 
politically um, already, you know, in that world where, um, you know, the state and the authority is malevolent. And um, of course, we need to be able to, uh, you know, use money and transfer resources in a way to organize um, dissent and disruption to that project. But, um, but again, I think it really depends on where you uh, aim the lens. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess, like, you know, you know, Snowden, like, views the government being malevolent. Uh, you mentioned referencing authoritarian regimes that are technologically capable um, in passing, like, you've also made a comparison, maybe, like, the society we're living in, how you view it, could be viewed that way. Uh, do you have, and, and, like, given the developments that we've seen over the past two decades, it, it certainly seems like we're on a trajectory. Um, do you have any, like, insights or... Um, ideas of why that might be happening? Like, are we turning more into China? I, I do. I mean, I, I, my, I'm a materialist. <laughs> so um, I, I think most of politics can be explained by looking at people's standard of living and their prospects and over time. Um, and I think that the reason why we're seeing um uh, right-wing populist anti-immigrant parties on the rise throughout the world is not because Russia is sending clever Facebook ads into our political campaigns, um, but because inequality, uh, economic inequality, has been growing in all of our societies for the last 50 years. That 50 years ago, if you had a blue-collar job in the United States, you could support a family on one income. And now it's hard to do it on two incomes. Um, and I think that the, the role that technology has played here has just been accelerationist, that um, through hyper-efficiency, um, uh, all, all these resources that were spread across the society are being hoarded by elites, whether they're financial elites in you know hedge funds or um, uh, high finance, or whether they're technological elites uh, who are wiping out main streets by delivering a product more cheaply and more um, conveniently. And then that is a huge threat to our democracies because we haven't seen successful democracies that don't have strong middle classes. Um, and you know, as people uh, experience that precarity, a precarity that is largely invisible to coastal elites um, in the United States, um, they're quite susceptible to um, explanations that will say blame immigrants um, for this, that will you know direct hostility towards elites, that will attract. Um, uh, you know, devotion to to angry populist leaders, um, and so I think that the huge, the vital. This is not totally relevant to our conversation so far, but the most important project um, of saving free societies over the next generation is going to be finding some way to share resources more fairly. Um, you know, I think a lot of technologists say, don't worry, we'll just have a universal basic income. Great. So pour your wealth into creating the politics that will provide a universal basic income. Don't just say someone will do that down the road. If you think that's the solution, um, then let's do it. Let's have one, right? Let's let's see these you know, billionaires on the coast actually supporting a politics where everybody gets paid. Um, or... Um, uh, 
you know, somehow the economy is going to need to create meaningful jobs and lives for um, the millions of people who are being made redundant by the advances, and particularly by the advances in automation that we're going to see um, over the next 10 or 20 years. So, um, so that's my biggest, that's the thing that keeps me up at night, um, is not, um, you know, facial recognition is getting better and better. Um, it is that um, I, I have not, you know, sort of seen a clear vision um, of how society is going to take care of the tens or hundreds of millions of people who are not necessary to our economy. Yeah, I mean, I saw some graphs on Twitter or X, what we call it these days, where you know, showing the disparity between like the average uh, cost of a house versus the income of a, of an individual like yeah, the average individual um and you know the individual is basically flatlining whereas you know the cost of housing is just exponentially rising and then it, there was other graphs that applied to almost everything else that's happening uh like every else that consumer would buy um so i mean that certainly makes sense uh with ubi though like i guess one of my concerns with that is if it's not actually universal if it comes with some kind of causes or conditions, because then it can be used as another mechanism to condition all of the people I, who opt into that system. I agree. I agree. I also, I only think, I think it's only politically sustainable if it's universal. Yeah. Um, right. It really, if it's viewed as a, you know, handout to these people and not these other people, it won't have a strong enough foundation. Just give it to everybody. Um, just make sure, I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's just, it's not the case that our society doesn't have the wealth to do it. We just don't have the will, um, to do it. And again, I'm not advocating that as the particular solution. I think that there are lots of ways to, um, uh, you know, better and worse ways, um, uh, you know, to ensure that people can live lives of dignity. Um, and, and I also think that, 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 you know, people need work. Um, they don't need it just for income. Um, they need it for meaning. We haven't yet figured out um, how to distribute leisure um, in a way that allows people to have meaningful lives. Um, but um, but I do think that that's a better explanation for our politics. I hear some people saying, you know, if you look at the challenges to democracy, they 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 exactly track the rise of social media. And I say, you know, what else happened? When social media began to dominate the global financial crisis, right? So I mean, you can you can it it, it, it may be that both of them have some role here, but um, but I, I I do think that there's a tendency in the tech community to see um, you know its products not only as the way to solve all problems, but as the source and cause of all problems, um, and I, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, I mean. It's certainly not entirely true because, like, I mean, the world is uh, and the societies we live in is much more multivariate than that. Um, but I guess that's kind of where I see some hope in like blockchains in principle because it does allow you to distribute a policy to a large number of people and like their active participation, their consent is kind of required for it to be maintained. And uh, assuming you can have a consensus algorithm that. that uh, can support a large number of participants. Um, and to me, that's, at least in principle, is very compelling. Uh, what, and it doesn't matter what that policy is, per se. Yeah. Well, keep innovating, right? I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, peop- um, and it needs to be legible to people who are not 
the most yeah. sophisticated tech users. Well, right? I think that, this that, is the reason why. Yeah. Right. No one used PGP because the it was. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, you you, it, you had to have, both users had to have the capability to um, to have a PGP key, to know how it worked, to, um, right? It just, it was so hard that before we had Signal, um, we were just talking about, you know, something that just a handful of tech elites were able to use. And so I, I, I think that, that that idea of um, not just how clever is this idea, but how legible um, can it be um, to people who are outside of our own communities is very important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like having a very easy UX, it's very low friction. Um, but the, I guess the other com- component to that is also the understanding. So like these techn- technologies are developed in an open source way, but at the same time, they require like a high uh, amount of computer science literacy. Like you need to understand the math to understand these, how, how these work. So for like the average citizen, like you end up just being like another high priest that's kind of pointing to something that, you know, it should be the basis of legitimacy, but how are they supposed, like what heuristics do they have to be able to, to trust in you and trust in that? Well, you know? I guess I would say I, I, most people who are using Signal and WhatsApp don't know how public key encryption works, no. but it's been sold to them as a way to communicate with people in their networks that makes surveillance by any kind of hostile actor not impossible, but much more difficult, right? And you don't have, they don't have to know the difference between hacking an endpoint and so-and-so. They just have been, have been persuaded by people they trust, um, by tech journalists saying, hey, it's easy, download this and use this. And then they get a little notification that their friends are using it. And then another one, right? Those kinds of things, those kinds of network effects. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that people need to um, understand the beauty of the math um, in order to be persuaded to um, but to use a tool. Who does right? right. Kind of- yeah, and, and it has to be a tool that's capable of doing you know more than three transactions a second or whatever. Right, it has to be something that really can scale. Um, uh, if if you're talking about something that's not just, or you can have a more modest view, which is that um, this is not a something that needs to be adopted by billions of people across the planet. Um, this is something that, um, you know, particular activist communities need to be able to um, have access to in order to protect them from certain kinds of threats, right? Um, there just needs to be, yeah. I, I guess it, um, I, I kind of agree with that, but the, the only other issue I see with that is making sure the anonymity set is large enough, right? So right. If it is just like a right. group of journalists, then they're all identifiable. Um, That's right. But, you just but, need to be the 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 second slowest zebra, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Not the fastest. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, in 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 a similar way, like you know, if you can imagine this as a separate center of power or an authority or a, or a social order, um, you can at least. And I know that's a big leap to to kind of come to, but uh, at least we can prove in code that certain rights are encoded into into this order, right? So it's like, you know, the right to privacy, for example, if you are using the system, you will have it. Um, it doesn't work, you know, you don't have to rely on trust or, or a promise, yeah. you know, um, or a legal defense. And I, I think, you know, obviously those things still exist and, you know, they're still very, uh, very powerful and, and, and necessary, but 
Uh, to me, that's kind of compelling. Like, that's what's kind of compelling about this, and what I would like to have anyone who desires that to have access to. But yeah, I mean, they are not. Yeah, blockchains in particular are not scalable to be able to support that today. Can I ask one question um, that, well, I've got two questions. One is, um, part of it was mentioned earlier on, which was um, you both um, talked about uh, sort of like centralized authoritarian systems. And one of the key recent developments that we've seen um, is the emergence of CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. Um, I want to get your thoughts, both of you, from your perspective, why this is so dangerous and why, well, in the case of Ben, do you think this is dangerous? And yeah, I mean, so I guess the, the first thing I will say is I could imagine a system, a CBDC, that would be an improvement over the status quo. Um, it would require a lot of political and technological conditions that are unlikely to be met. Um, so, so if you think about the options that are available to a typical uh, person right now, one who's not sophisticated, they all involve... Um, uh, you know, sort of surveillance by private corporations at the least and, and a lot of control by private corporations. And you've seen how, you know, PayPal can cut people off because it doesn't agree with their politics. Um, if you had a CBDC that using very sophisticated encryption um, allowed for um, transactions of, say, under $10,000, um, to be effectively treated like cash um, so that they would be invisible to the central authority and not linked to anybody's identity. Um, uh, you know, store things on devices rather than in some kind of central system. Th th there are ways, we have the technology right now to create what might be called the CBDC um, that, would, that would preserve, at least preserve, the kinds of privacy that people get from using cash today. Now, of course, the much and, and if you look at the executive order that the White House put out on this, it did essentially say, let's explore these kinds of technologies. Um, let's look seriously at whether you know, there's a way to ensure this. I, I, I do think that, again, those kinds of protections are always politically vulnerable because you could establish a system like that under one set of rules. And then, as I said before, change those rules. Um, on the argument that this is being used for terrorism and child pornography. So I think it's a pretty dangerous road um, to, to go down. But I don't say, um, you know, that there's no way in which a system like this um, could not be, you know, could be created that would not be an improvement um, over the corporate dominated one that we have right now. I just say that it would require a very, very unlikely um, set of political and legal conditions um, that will be hard to beat. So, our, you know, our, our position is, you know, if you can guarantee conditions one through seven, then we would not oppose the creation of this kind of mechanism. Um, uh, uh, you know, but but as I, as as I suspect we're about to hear, you know, the far more likely situation is that uh, we enter a world where every transaction, large or small, um, is recorded in a government database that's visible to government investigators when they want to see it. Yeah, I mean, now query, query, query how different that is from today when all they need to do is call up Venmo, call up PayPal, call up Bank of America, call up Chase Bank, um, and you know get this information, usually without a warrant. 
um, in our legal regime. So I think that the status quo that we're living in is 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 most of the way towards the in our society the dystopia that um, that, that you're going to say this thing would create. I think we're already in that place. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess my question would be like. Given those conditions, one through seven, what you know, whatever they are, yeah. um, are met, what capabilities would be left for that central authority? Like, what would they? Well, have? I think the main the main capability would be, um, and what would distinguish this from the sort of kind of private um, DeFi um, uh, options right now, is that it would it would be designed to. Um, to not allow large movements of money to be invisible, right? So, and already that is the law, right? If it's, I don't, I don't know what the thresholds are, but above a certain amount, um, transactions are supposed to be reported. It's the way government insists that it enforces um, the tax code and anti-money laundering requirements, right? So, so this would be, you know, this this is why the government would want to do it, um, and why the, it would be worth it to the government to say. Under ten thousand dollars, whatever <laughs> you know, you can have that. What we're worried about is fifty million dollars, a hundred million dollars, five hundred million dollars, right? Right. I, I guess, like, I, I, I mean, in my own lifetime with my own personal bank accounts, I've seen the ratcheting of that threshold go down. Right. Yeah. Um, in one particular bank account, they need, they just told me that anything over a thousand dollars, you know, will require some things. So I, I well, that's that their policy. That, that at least yeah. is not the law. That's their policy. But yeah. yes. Right. But yeah. I mean, like, I, yeah. I guess that's, yeah. um, and I guess my question is like, wouldn't that lead to externalities to governance? Like, you know, people wanting to make those transactions, find value in art, for example, and, and, you know, move it that way, or wouldn't they just like lead to like a, a series of smaller transactions in the network? Well, I mean, that, that I, I think you're describing the status quo, right? Right, um, is that p- people do all kinds of things to try to evade the legal requirements that are already in place, and the government calls that structuring, and it's a felony. Uh, and if they catch you, you can get in quite a lot of trouble um, for those kinds of things. But um, but look, that 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 is the 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 status quo, and I, I think you know ultimately. Everything comes down to cost-benefit analyses here, and what you're more worried about, right? Um, uh, and I mean, the same is true with secure communications. There's still a cost-benefit analysis. We wouldn't say that there is zero cost to law enforcement to the you know use of the widespread deployment of Signal or WhatsApp. We'd say that there's an appropriate cost um, given the rights that are being protected here. And I think that some of us come down differently um, on the financial side. Um, uh, and some people would say that this privacy is so important and so vital to freedom, to liberty, that the fact that governments may have a harder time um, tracking mass movements of resources is a price we're willing to pay. And you know what? They'll probably be able to, to you know, it's not as if they're going to be totally disempowered. Um, uh, you know, at some point, you're going to want to move those hundreds of millions of dollars into a currency that allows you to buy the yacht, um, right? And and at that point, right, go- governments will still have some power. Um, uh, but but I think, you know, as a as a normative matter, I'm willing to concede 
um, that gov- that states, the democratic states, have a fairly strong interest um, in uh, having visibility into movements of massive, massive amounts of cash and resources, right? I guess, yeah, I mean, I can say that. I mean, and I, my question was going to be like, well, if this is the current status quo, then what's the benefit of the government even in trying to do it as CBDC? But like, I could see that if they were able to, you know, get a better overview of all transactions, even though in the system they're supposed to be private, unless they're over a certain threshold, they might have that. I guess the other question that I would have yeah. though, is then, like, why is like KYC and AML applied to average citizens? And like, why, like society in general seems to be a shift away from, you know, into cashless societies. And like, are these really the people that are making these very large transactions, you know? Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I don't, I don't disagree there. And you certainly won't see human rights organizations advocating for uh, a central bank digital currency. What you'll see us doing is um, if we see that that train has left the station, um, then, you know, doing everything possible, um, uh, you know, to create friction in these systems to maintain. uh, And and I think, again, as you say, there's, there's so much less use of cash now, uh, less and less every year. Um, we have to fight against businesses prohibiting uh, customers paying in cash, right, and, and making that illegal. People should be able to pay in cash for anything. Um, and so, you know, if if there could be a way for people to do routine small transactions um, in a digital currency that was not stored in a corporate database or, in, or indeed in any database, right, then... Um, then I would share that, whether it's created by the private sector or whether it's created by the government. The the greater danger with the government um, is that, as I said, that they can change the rules. Um, uh, but but I think you know if um, if tornado cash, right? If their pools had all been ten thousand dollars or lower, um, I don't think they'd be in the trouble that they're in um, with. The, with OFAC and with the government than they are when they allow, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to be mixed. I mean, that's certainly a topic we can get into. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we'll save that one for the for yeah, the next conversation. I think so. Yeah. I mean, and I guess it's like this idea that, you know, the government can change the rules is why I find move, a move away from CBDs and prefer blockchains is more preferable because at least the policy is distributed, as well as the computational energy requirements to maintain that system can be distributed. And that, to me, seems like a stronger promise of upholding a certain set of you know, um, rules or whatever the, the policy might be, even if that includes transactions over a certain amount being transparent. Um, yeah, but you, the, you, also could, you also could create a set of rules that is not as blatantly inconsistent with the existing rules in democratic yes, societies. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And yes, I, I again I I am inclined to agree that um, being able to achieve that degree of privacy, if it were usable for the masses, right, would yes. be preferable um, without government involvement. Yeah. We'll get that. But but I mean that's a big if. Yeah. Right. I have one last question, which is for both of you, gentlemen. That is, we've discussed quite a lot during the course of this conversation, and it was a fascinating conversation for me to for me to witness and for me to watch. Um, we've discussed the past, but also the future threats 
towards our rights and liberties. Um, when you look ahead, um, are you hopeful and optimistic or not? And why? Both. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am, I am hopeful and I'm worried. Um, I'm worried because, uh, as I mentioned before, the increasing inequality, um, the massive economic disrupt disruption, and the way historically that has led to huge political upheavals um, means that we're going to have to buckle up and fasten our seatbelts. I think we're going to be entering, you know, quite a turbulent time. I'm optimistic because I think that, um, you know, people have shown over time um, that we're able to get things right. We're able to improve these systems. Um, we're able to um, expand our notions of rights and liberties. Um, and that there are so many people around the world um, who are really deeply committed. Um, uh, you know, in my, in my you know, daily interactions, I'm not encountering uh, a lot of hopelessness. Um, I'm encountering a lot of fight uh, and people um, who realize that um, you know, maybe in the last half century, we had an unusually quiet period um, uh, in some of our societies and that we're sort of returning to a time that's a little bit more typical uh, of human history, where we're going to have to adjust to, to much more significant changes um, than whether the Democrats or the Republicans are in power, <laughs> right? Um, but, but real sort of major um, societal disruptions. But, um, but I, I, again, I just I see so many people um, so brilliantly, um, trying to light a way forward, um, that it's hard to sort of spend your days around those people and, uh, and remain pessimistic. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm also both, you know, hopeful and worried, uh, for, for very much the same reasons. And, you know, we were all born into, into an unprecedented historical peace as well. So, it is quite new for us to enter into a state of conflict around the world. Um, and I, I think as long as, you know, people like Ben uh, and myself trying different avenues of which uh, can help uh, steer our societies in uh, a direction that is fair and more equal for, for all, um, I think there's also a demand for, you know, within the public, within the people, for the things that we fight for. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's going, I, I think it will, it will prevail. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Um, it was a, it was an honour um, to witness this conversation and to ask a few questions. I personally really enjoyed it. I hope you both enjoyed it as well. Thanks very much. It was a real pleasure. Uh, I hope to talk to you both again. Thanks, Thanks. Ben.